0: A prisoner had been incarcerated for a serious crime, and he had served nearly a decade of his sentence. Past the time, this man had labored in the prison's clothing and garment department. And when it was his turn to finally appear before the parole board, one of the reviewers asked him, have you been sewing for the last 10 years? And that's when the prisoner replied, no, I've been reaping. For it's true, we reap what we sow. And that's what Leviticus chapter 20 is all about. In this chapter, Moses dishes out the penalties for the crimes that he enumerated in chapters 18 and 19. Verse 1 begins, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. This god Molech was an Ammonite idol. Molech means king. He was worshipped in Canaan, the land that the Israelites would inherit. And God warns his people not to worship this idol. You remember the cruel torture that went into the worship of this idol, how that they would lay their babies in the arms of this hollowed out image and they would stoke the image with fire until it became glowing hot and they would lay the babies into the arms of the image and the babies would literally be sacrificed, would be burned to death and the priests would beat their drums and sound their horns to drown out the screams of the child. It was a terrible, terrible form of worship and God wanted no part of it in his land, in the land of Israel. Under the Levitical law, idolatry and molech worship was a crime punishable by death. And notice here the mode of execution. It was stoning. In Israel, execution was always performed by stoning. The idolater was pummeled with rocks until he died. And notice here who carries out the execution. Notice verse 2. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Notice, not the government, not some executioner. But the people carried out the sentence. Several years ago, Larry King was interviewing talk show host Phil Donahue. And King asked him if there was anything else that Phil Donahue would like to do on television. And Phil said that he would like to air a live execution. Not for the ratings, not for the sensationalism, But so the citizens who were in favor of capital punishment could actually see a real one. And though I disagree with Phil Donahue's politics, there is some truth in his logic. It's very easy for us to shout out, hang him high, fry him. All those kinds of things when we're not the one who has to pull the switch. I do believe in capital punishment. The Bible teaches that it's for today. But I also believe that if the execution was actually carried out by the accusers or by the jurors, it would certainly add one more layer of safeguard to our system. People would definitely think a little longer before they made their assessments. It's interesting. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Verse 3, And I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. And if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Molech and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and against his family and will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry. With Molech, God was so intent of prohibiting this Molech worship that he assigned not only the death penalty to those who committed the crime, but in addition, if you knew of someone who was sacrificing his kids to Molech and you didn't report him, you too deserved a death sentence. I guess we could say that God was deadly serious about keeping Molech worship out of the life of his people Israel. Now, understand, when we study the Levitical law, it's important for us to grasp how it needs to be applied today. Here's what it does teach us it does teach us what matters to God and the degree to which it matters, but it doesn't apply to nations today the way it did in ancient Israel. Israel was a theocracy. It was a nation under the direct rule of God in God's law. Old Testament Israel was an attempt to legislate morality and spirituality. In Israel, righteousness was enforced. Immorality, idolatry were punished, often with the death penalty. And it's instructive to note that this enforced conduct, it failed to make a moral people. Case in point is this worship of Molech. You'd think with these stiff warnings here that the people would do anything but commit this crime. And yet, despite God's warnings, this remains a problem throughout Israel's history. It's amazing. If you flip over to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 7, we're told that even King Solomon, for a while the godly King Solomon, set up altars dedicated to Molech. Obviously, all of the laws, all of the warnings in the world didn't cause the people to stay obedient to God and didn't cause them to love Him with all their hearts. You know, today, though all laws are based on some form of morality, laws in America do not serve the same purpose as the Levitical law. Our laws are designed to maintain a civil society. No one assumes that they're going to make you moral or spiritual. And none of us really want someone else telling us how to worship. It's interesting, there was no freedom of religion in Israel. I mean, you worship idols and you receive the death penalty. In America, though, freedom of worship is our most sacred possession. We need to understand that as Christians, we live under a new covenant. Not the Levitical law, but under a new covenant. The Holy Spirit has now written God's law in our heart. And we learn to obey God from the inside out. Morality, spirituality are no longer mandated by external standards. They're motivated by inward transformation. This is how the Holy Spirit works in us. The goal for us today is not to kill the idolater, but to point him to Jesus. And let Jesus turn that idolater into someone who loves him with all their heart. Well, verse 6 continues. It tells us that sorcery or divination also brought a death sentence. And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Now, Here's what we should learn from this. Don't you think that checking out your horoscope in the newspaper or dialing the psychic hotline is no big deal to God? Apparently it is. It's a life or death matter to God. He says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. As we've said before, to be holy is to be holy for God. And we should look to God alone as our counselor, not familiar spirits. And a familiar spirit was a spiritual being, namely a demon, with which we shouldn't be familiar. That's what a familiar spirit was. Our God in spiritual matters, in life itself, is to be God alone. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. And this should be posted in the bedroom of every teenager in America. God is deadly serious about us respecting our parents. If you're a rebellious child and your father installs a rock garden in the backyard, you better beware. (laughs) Seriously, cursing a parent was not just saying a bad word toward them. It was a calculated threat. It was invoking a higher power to do your parents harm. It was symptomatic of an incorrigible, unchangeable person. An older child who was beyond all restraint. This is the person that's in mind here in this verses. Verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Adultery was also a crime punishable by death under the Levitical law. And this gives weight to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19 when he says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. In other words, sexual immorality is the exception since under the law, the guilty spouse would have been stoned, therefore leaving the victim a widow or a widower. You understand what I'm saying? Thus, that person would be free to marry because their spouse would have been stoned. And that's why Jesus, he shows mercy to the sinner by not stoning her. But at the same time, too, he still allows freedom for the victim, the same freedom that they would have been afforded under the law of Moses. Verse 10 also casts an amazing light on John chapter 8. You remember the story of the woman taken in adultery? And the Pharisees, remember, they brought her to Jesus. They threw her down at his feet and they said, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. They were referring to this passage right here. But then they said, but what do you say? Now it's interesting. Here we learn that the law actually said that you don't just stone the woman, but you stone the man and the woman. Last I heard, adultery takes two. So where was the man? They brought the woman taken in adultery. She was taken in adultery. The man had to been there too. Where was the man? You know, that whole passage indicates that it was a setup. That this poor woman was a victim that they had brought and they were using to merely set Jesus up to try to accuse Him, to try to stump Him. Verse 11, The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. Both forms of adult incest were punishable by death. Verse 13. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And again, as we said last week, God is not fuzzy on this issue. God is not unclear. God is crystal clear. In ancient Israel, homosexuality was punishable by death. God considered it a serious crime. He considered homosexuality a sexual perversion that threatened the safety and health of the society at large. Let me state the obvious. Did you know that homosexuals cannot reproduce? They can't. That means that the only way that activists can multiply their numbers is through recruitment. And this is why some gay and lesbian groups are lobbying to implement pro-homosexual curriculums in our elementary schools and in our middle schools. And if acceptance of their lifestyle grows then the impressionable child at fragile times in their lives, during times of sexual confusion, might be encouraged to experiment with the gay lifestyle. This is the intention of many of these groups. Donna Minkowitz, a lesbian social columnist, she writes of the world she envisions, in a world without the heterosexual imperative... Maybe kids would try on different forms of sexuality as they now try on musical styles, career choices, and haircuts. I'm not suggesting all homosexuals are actively trying to recruit our kids into the gay lifestyle. I'm sure that's not the case. But I do believe that the more accepting a society becomes of this behavior, the more prone, impressionable people are to experiment legitimize, glamorize the gay lifestyle, and it causes social and sexual confusion, especially among our young people. This is why homosexuality needs to be treated as a perversion of our God-given sexuality, not a norm. And this is also true of adultery and incest. God didn't treat homosexuality any differently, understand that, than He did incest or adultery. In Old Testament Israel, all forms of sexual perversion brought the death penalty. Now, perhaps this is a good time to emphasize what I hope you already know. That I would never want to see a homosexual put to death, or an idolater, or a kid who cursed his parents. No, I wouldn't want to see that. Or an adulterer, or a palm reader. The law teaches us lessons. After reading the law, I hope there's no question in your mind as to God's attitude toward these behaviors. But we also know that since the cross, Jesus died for homosexuals and for rebellious teenagers and for palm readers and for mediums and for sorcerers and the like. In fact, he died for all sinners on the cross. And this is why the law applied to ancient Israel, not to nations today. You see, the law of Moses was needed prior to the coming of Jesus because there was no power in that day to transform a human heart. The law provided external standards, but it had no power to affect an internal change. This is why the incorrigible person was eliminated from the camp. All he or she could ever be was a bad example. But under the new covenant, you see, there's hope. There's hope to change people through Jesus even the worst sinner even the most callous sinner is not beyond the reach of God's grace aren't you glad the cure for sin under the new covenant is not elimination it's salvation i love 1 corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 there it says neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But then Paul says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We live in a day where there is power available to change any person. And we revel in the grace of God and we want to share it with as many people as we can. The answer for sin today is not elimination, it's salvation. So if you know a homosexual, and most of us do, show that person God's love and pray for their salvation. Verse 14 says, If a man marries a woman and her mother, it is wickedness. They shall be burned with fire, both he and they that there may be no wickedness among you. What would ever get into a man to marry his mother-in-law? I have no idea. This has to be some kind of real wickedness. Some real depravity going on. It's interesting. Bible commentator Adam Clark suggests that the phrase they shall be burned with fire, actually meant a branding with a hot iron. And so rather than execution, the parties to this perversion were in some way branded, marked for life. A guy stupid enough to marry his mother-in-law, to execute him, he would just be getting off easy. (laughs) The worst penalty is just to brand the guy and let him live with it for the rest of his life. And if a man mates with an animal, he shall surely, bestiality, he shall surely be put to death. And you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and mates with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Let me say, you have to run a lot of stop signs and a lot of red lights to sink this low. And God knew without the power of Jesus, without the work of the Holy Spirit, this person's plight was hopeless. They were destined to only be a bad example. And thus they were to be eliminated. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter or his mother's daughter, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing. And they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. You know, it really is an issue in some families where there's brothers and sisters and all. At what point do you stop the kids from running around, you know, naked together, taking baths together? Their brother and sister are both naked. And, you know, at what point do you stop that? Well, I think it's pretty early. I think it's early on. I think you want to encourage modesty. And you don't want a brother looking upon his sister's nakedness or or vice versa. I know this is actually talking about incest here, but I think it applies. I think you want to try to stop that early on. It's not a good thing to encourage. Notice, too, though, this penalty was not death. It was exile. There's a sanctioning. There's an isolation from the camp. But this is apparently a lesser crime than those which deserve death. If a man lies with a woman during her sickness and uncovers her nakedness, he has exposed her flow and she has uncovered the flow of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from their people. Please spare me from talking about this again. We talked about it back in chapter 15, and so please go back and get the tape. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, nor of your father's sister, for that would uncover his near of kin. They shall bear their guilt. If a man lies with his uncle's wife... He has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. Perhaps the motivation behind this kind of adultery was to enlarge the family. And thus the penalty notice was no children. As usual, sin backfires, doesn't it? You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nations which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. Israel will drive out the Canaanites, but if the Israelites live like the Canaanites, God will drive them out. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean, and you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird, or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. In other words, part of living as one of God's kids was learning to distinguish between things that are clean and things that are unclean. And as we talked about for Israel, this meant what foods to eat. There were certain things that were clean, certain things that were unclean. But we as children of God also need to learn to differentiate between what's clean and what's unclean. And it has nothing to do with foods that we eat, but it does have something to do with movies we watch or with music we listen to or with TV shows that we tune into. It has a lot to do with those issues. We need to learn what pleases God and what displeases God. And then we need to live our lives accordingly. Verse 26, and you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Verse 27, just before we go on, isn't that a wonderful thing? God says that you may be mine. Did you know God wants you as his own? Isn't that a wonderful thing that you're wanted by God? That he wants you to be his bride? He looks at you and he says, oh, I'm so proud of you. You are mine. And so now that you've been honored in that way, now that you know you belong to God, live like it. Verse 27. A man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Don't dabble in the occult, in witchcraft, or in sorcery, or in divination. The execution of the criminal was the law's answer to these sins. But thankfully, that was not Jesus' answer. Remember when the Jews threw down that half-naked, caught in the act adulterous, threw her down right at Jesus' feet. They said, now Moses in the law commanded That such should be stoned. But what do you say? And here's what Jesus said. It's music to my ears. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's what Jesus had to say. The law said stoner. But Jesus said. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's what Jesus has said about us. Aren't you glad? The answer is. To sin under the law was the elimination of the sinner. The answer to sin with Jesus is the salvation of the sinner. That's why I follow Jesus, not Moses. Chapters 21 and 22 cover codes of conduct for the priests. And don't think these regulations don't apply to us. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 tells us that in Christ we have been made A royal priesthood. Remember, a priest was a man who represented God to the people and then the people to God. And this applies to you and me as well. When we pray, we are bringing people to God. When we witness, we are bringing God to the people. Our job is prayer and share. And in chapter 21, we're taught to do it with care. We've also talked a lot about, in Leviticus, the difference between ceremonial and moral laws. And I just want to remind you of this distinction before we get into this chapter. Moral laws protected Israel from intrinsic evil. Ceremonial laws were symbolic. They taught spiritual lessons. They weren't always dealing with evil, per se. And I say that because most of the rules here in chapters 21 and 22 were of the ceremonial variety, most of them. Verse 1 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother, also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has had no husband, for her he may defile himself. Otherwise, he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people to profane himself. This was a ceremonial concern. Understand this. You see, the priest was to have no contact with death because he represented the living God. You see, death was sin's wages. It was a symptom of sin, And therefore, to withdraw from it was a sign of his own purity and the purity that God desired among his people. Today, of course, pastors officiate at funeral services. But in Old Testament Israel, you would never find a priest at a wake or at a memorial service, with one exception. The priest could attend the funeral of a close family member, in which case he would be coming for personal reasons, Rather than coming as God's representative. Verse 5. They shall not make any bald place on their heads. Nor shall they shave the edges of their beards. Nor make any cuttings in their flesh. We talked about this earlier also. These were all practices associated with Canaanite idolatry. And the priests of Israel were to have no appearance of evil you know, in their practices. Even how they dressed. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire, and the bread of their God. Therefore they shall be holy. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. Since God always spoke of Israel as His wife, and since the priest represented God, then his bride represented the people. And this is why the priest was only to take a virgin bride. For God wanted his people, Israel, to be pure and to be spotless and to be faithful and to be dedicated to him alone. Understand, a lot of what's happening with the priest here is symbolic. He's a representative. And therefore, there are a lot of these laws here that apply to him that apply to him for symbolic purposes. Therefore, you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. And here is the only mention in the law of death by incineration. If the daughter of a priest becomes a harlot... She's not to be stoned, which was the customary form of execution, but she was to be burned. I mean, this is a priest's daughter who goes out and plays the harlot. She burns her parents. She breaks their heart, so she also gets burned. Verse 10. He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he... Did you know that when Jesus declared before the priest that yes, he was the Son of God? And you remember the high priest tore his garment? Did you know that he broke the law? He broke the Levitical law right here. The priest is not to tear his clothes. Nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his mother or his father. Nor shall he go out of the sanctuary or profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of God is upon him. I am the Lord. The high priest was forbidden to tear his robe, even when faced with the death of his own loved one. He was to show no public grief. Remember... The high priest represented God. And in God's view, death is nothing to fear. You understand that? In God's view, death is nothing to fear. Death is not our enemy. Death has been defeated. Death is now just a launching pad for us to enter into God's presence. And so the priest was not to show any grief toward death. He wasn't to show any fear. I think this is also true of a believer in Jesus. We know that death is not the end. Death is only a brand new beginning for anyone who knows Jesus. Guys, this life is just the pregame. We can greet death with gladness, not with grief. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot. These he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife nor shall he profane his posterity among his people, for I, the Lord, sanctify him. And again, it's not that marrying a divorced woman would have been wrong or immoral for the typical Jew living in the land. There was just more at stake when it came to the priest. In other words, represent God and you're held to a higher standard. And often, simple actions make symbolic statements for someone who represents God. I spoke to a brand new pastor this past week. And I talked to him about the car he drove and the size of house in which he lived. And because he comes into the ministry from the business world, and because he had been quite successful, I mean, he drove a Lexus, and he lives in this big, huge house. And none of these things were considerations before he went into the ministry But I was trying to explain to him that now they are considerations. They are things he needs to concern himself about. And he needs to be careful how he handles these issues. For when you represent God, you accept a closer scrutiny. And you forego certain rights and privileges that are enjoyed by others. People just look at you differently. And you have to accept that. And you have to try to be a good representative of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach a man blind or lame, who has a marred face, or any limb too long, or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or is a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his eye, or eczema, or scab, or is a eunuch. All I can say is I'm glad I'm not a Levitical priest. Without my glasses, I'm blind. I got acne scars on my face. I'm sure one leg is shorter than the other. My back hurts so much. I'm getting a little bit of a hunchback. I got a scab. Nobody wants to see it, but I got a scab. I mean, I only meet two qualifications. I'm no midget, and I'm definitely not a eunuch. Again, I'm so thankful we're not under the law of Moses. I'm so thankful we're under the grace of Jesus. But I want you to notice something important here. Notice that the priest was not to be a eunuch. I mean, if you were a eunuch, you couldn't be a priest. A priest had to be a family man. Notice that. You would want the man who represents you before God to be aware of family issues, wouldn't you? Of course you would. Guys, there is absolutely no biblical basis for the Roman Catholic doctrine of priestly celibacy. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's just the opposite. The priest had to be a family man. That idea of the priest being celibate, it's from pagan origins. You don't get it from the Bible, which reminds me. You know, just recently, Pope John Paul died and he went to heaven. And immediately when he got there, he asked to go to the library. And once he got there, you know, got in the library, disappeared among the racks of books, and he was there for a long, long time. And, and all of a sudden, the angel that was sitting out at the front desk heard this blood-curdling scream. And he was afraid. What happened to the Pope? And so he ran back, and there was the Pope. He was sitting at this desk, and he had this book out in front of him, and he was just shaking his head in frustration, and he was pointing down, and he was saying, there's an R. I can't believe it. There's an R. And the angel said, what do you mean? And he says, it says celebrate. (laughs) Celebrate. Well, no man of the descendants of Aaron, the priest, who has a defect, shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the Most Holy and the Holy, only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect. Lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. And Moses told it to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel. There was no need for handicapped parking spaces in the priestly parking lot. Because there was no birth defect, no disabilities allowed among the members of the priesthood. Notice verse 22 says that an injured Levite could remain on the payroll and could fellowship with God. He could eat of the offerings But he couldn't actually serve in the public role of a priest. In other words, this law says nothing about God's love for the injured Levite or the disabled Levite. God loved him and God wanted to fellowship with him. But God said that he couldn't serve in public ministry. And the reason, again, was ceremonial. God wanted to teach his people that he required perfection. That's what we need to learn. That when you go to God on your own, God expects perfection. That's why none of us can be saved on our own. That's why none of us can ever meet up to God's standard on our own. That's why we need Jesus. But in the Old Testament, these things were all lessons. And so God expected perfection. From the sacrifice, He wanted an unblemished lamb. And from the priest, He wanted an unblemished priest offering it. I think there's one more spiritual application that we could make here. I'm afraid that the body of Christ today is plagued by too many lame pastors. Men blind to the real issues. Who lack biblical balance, one leg shorter than the other. The church today is plagued by too many pastors that are spiritual midgets. That are spineless and hunched over. Men who won't put their foot down or take a stand, apparently it's broken. Men who act rashly. And men who are spiritual eunuchs, they're unfruitful. They're not winning people to Jesus. And we need to forbid these kinds of men from being in the public ministry of the church. Did I water that down too much? Chapter 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel and that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. Now, the priest handled the holy things. The blood, the showbread, the sacrifices, the holy things. But if a priest was unclean for whatever reason, That disqualified him from ministering while he was unclean. If he did publicly minister, he would profane God's holy name. And what God is teaching us here is that while he's unclean, he needs to stay away from handling the holy things. God is teaching that a man's purity is strategic to his ministry. That if you're going to handle holy things, you need to live a holy life. Did you get that? You know, that seems so simple. That seems like a no-brainer. But I was listening the other day to a teaching that was at a church growth conference that was being sponsored and held at a mega church here in Atlanta. You'd recognize the name of the church if I told you. And the pastor was suggesting in the tape that we find engaging presenters within the church and we let them do the teaching. And he said this, It doesn't matter if he's been a Christian for just a few weeks. It doesn't even matter if he's a Christian at all. If he's an engaging presenter, then put him on the platform and let him present. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. I was appalled. Take that idea to an extreme and you'll find a church full of characters rather than a church full of character. And I'd a lot rather be in a church full of character than in a church full of characters. I've been in a few of those churches full of characters. Divorce purity from ministry and you will eventually shame God's name. And we can't compromise. Just because you're a flamboyant speaker, just because you're some kind of fancy talker, that doesn't mean you're qualified to be up in front of the people representing God. There has to be holiness. There has to be some purity in your life. There has to be a standard for living. Verse 3, Say to them, Whoever of all your descendants throughout your generations who goes near the holy things which the children of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. Whatever man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or who has a discharge shall not eat the holy things offerings until he is clean. Again, if a priest is unclean, it doesn't mean that he has to step down permanently, but it does mean that he has to take a back seat until his uncleanness has passed. And whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse, or a man who has had an emission of semen, or whoever touches any creeping thing by which he would be made unclean. And we talked about why these things make you ceremonially unclean. And again, that was back in chapter 15. When we had that fun night where we discussed all of the bodily discharges. And if you want to sit down for a night of secretions and bodily discharges and the issues on the issues, you can go back to that tape. Or any person by whom he would become unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes his body with water. And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean. And afterward, he may eat the holy offerings, because it is his food. At sundown, the priest was reinstated. And I want you to notice, this is always the goal of spiritual discipline. Restoration. Reinstatement. Always. And remember, sundown, not sunrise, not midnight like we do, But sundown was the beginning of the Hebrew day. Remember in Genesis? And the evening and the morning were the first day. Sundown was the beginning of the Hebrew day. And that's why it's no accident that God planned for his priest to start each new day with a brand new start. If you were unclean, you were unclean only until sundown, until the beginning of a new day. With a new day, you got a new start. And this is God's plan for us. I love a new day. It's a new start. You know, we got beat pretty bad Friday night. But you know, our next game, we'll start zero to zero. It's a new start, a new day. Tomorrow's a new day. If you blew it today, ask God to forgive you. You're unclean today, okay. But you got a new day. And you start over clean the beginning of tomorrow. Make the most of it. Don't forget Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. And this excites me. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 8. Whatever dies naturally or is torn by beasts, he shall not eat. To defile himself with it, I am the Lord. So if you're a priest and you're on your way home tonight and you see a possum on the side of the road, no roadkill for you. They shall therefore keep my ordinance unless they bear sin for it and die thereby. If they profane it, I, the Lord, sanctify them. No outsider shall eat the holy offering. One who dwells with the priests or a hired servant shall not eat the holy thing. In other words, the priest, you know, he has some golfing buddies. They go play golf. They come back over to the house. They're not priests, but they come back over the house. He's hanging out with his buddies. You know, he can't pull out the sacrificial meat and have a barbecue. I mean, the part of the sacrifice intended for the priest was only to be eaten by the priest. In other words, he had to be careful when he dealt with holy things. And here in the church, in our church, you know, those of us on staff who are dealing with people's lives and the scriptures and doctrine, and we're dealing with holy things. So we have to be very, very careful how we handle them. But if the priest buys a person with his money, he may eat it. Not the person, but... The meat, you know, that's hanging around. And one who is born in his house may eat his food. The priest's slave and the priest's child were part of his household, and therefore he could eat the sacrificial meat from his table. Now, if the priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she may not eat of the holy offerings. In other words, once my daughter marries, she's no longer my responsibility. She becomes yoked to her husband. And it becomes his responsibility to feed her and to clothe her. And the feeding won't be a problem for my daughter. She's pretty skinny. But the clothing is a whole nother issue. And it's his responsibility to buy her shoes and paint her fingernails and all the other stuff that appears on her credit card. I always tell the father of the bride to be thankful. Because it's really all a matter of perspective. For when your daughter marries, you don't lose a daughter, guys. You gain a bathroom. Verse 13. But if the priest's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no child and has returned to her father's house... As in her youth, she may eat her father's food, but no outsider shall eat it. Isn't that a redeeming, gracious verse? If she goes out, if she gets mistreated or makes a mistake, or you know, some guy cheats on her and she's left you know, without a husband, hey, take her back. Bring her back into your home. Feed her the holy meat, the sacrificed meat. Feeder from God's table. It's a redeeming, gracious verse. And if a man eats the holy offering unintentionally, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth to it. They shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, or allow them to bear the guilt of trespass when they eat their holy offerings. For I, the Lord, sanctify them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel and say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows or for any of his freewill offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, you shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep or from the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice or a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a freewill offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. Therefore, there shall be no defect in it. God requires perfection from both priests and from the sacrifices. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. Either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a freewill offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. In other words, oh, it's time to make an offering to the Lord. Let's go out and pick the lamb. Oh, you see that one over there? It's kind of sick and diseased and it's about to die. Any? Oh, let's offer that one to the Lord. What kind of offering is that? Don't offer to God your leftovers. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land, nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these as the bread of your God, because their corruption is in them and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 8, God said to the Israel of his day, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? I mean, they were offering gifts to God that they wouldn't even offer the local politician. They were giving God their leftovers rather than giving to God their best. And are you guilty of the same We send our old clothes that we wouldn't be caught dead in anymore to the Salvation Army. And then we call it a great sacrifice. We spend all night poring over the newspaper and the sports page. And we read our novel and we watch television. And then we pick up our Bible and read a verse or two and think we're doing God such a great honor. Or we go out and do what we want for six days all week. And then we begrudge God for having to go to church for an hour on Sunday mornings. Or we think of nothing, of dropping a hundred bucks for concert tickets, but then we turn around and we think we're being so generous for putting that. This was a $20. It's a new $20 bill that we're putting in the offering. What kind of a sacrifice is that? Guys, are we giving God the leftovers of our time and our talents and our money and our efforts? Are we tossing God, the God of the universe, a few crumbs? Are we giving to the God of our salvation, the diseased of our flock? What kind of sacrifice is that? God wants our very best. The cream of the crop, man. The pick of the litter. 2 Samuel chapter 24, David said, Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. A true sacrifice is a sacrifice that costs us. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother. And from the eighth day and thereafter, it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Whether it is a cow or you, do not kill both her and her young on the same day. And one commentary that I read said this. And you animal lovers, you'll enjoy this. This rescued the sacrifice from the appearance of unfeeling cruelty. That sounds so sweet, doesn't it? That we wouldn't want to sacrifice the mother and the child on the same day. How sweet. You're going to butcher them both anyway. (laughs) What's the big deal? I mean, I don't know why that's so sweet. I don't know what this means, really. My best guess is that it probably referred to some kind of Canaanite, pagan Canaanite practice that the Israelites were supposed to steer clear from. But if you've got any insight on that one, see me after the service. I'd like to hear it. And when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. On the same day it shall be eaten. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. Therefore, you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord.